what we're doing is we're looking at a single chapter in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, the part written before Jesus was born. Um, we're about a thousand years before Jesus. And I'm going to read from that chapter now. So I'm going to read from 1 Samuel, chapter 4. It's on page 269, 269 in the Bibles here at church. 1 Samuel and chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark, the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. The men of Benjamin ran from the battle line, and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God, And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today and he said how did it go my son he who brought the news answered and said Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people 
Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay any attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. May God bless to us his word, help us to learn from it. So, evening sermon, this sermon now, part two, of uh, a look at 1 Samuel 4. I said that in looking at this Old Testament story from three years ago, uh, three years ago, 3,000 years ago, golly, suddenly shortened history. Our particular topic would be people living in an imaginary world. Imagination, given to human beings by God. Imagination, of course, very powerful thing. It served us, servant human beings, in so many remarkable ways. The things we've done, the things we've designed, the things we've written, the things we've sung... But imagination has its problems. Some of those problems arise in mental illness. People imagine things that they believe are happening around them, which are being said about them, that are being said to them. Sometimes imagination goes faulty, sadly. But even in ordinary life, even for those of us who aren't presently unwell in that way, We can live in an imaginary world, by which I mean we think that life is going this way, and we see where life is going, and we've understood what's happening. But the reality is over here and very different. And maybe others around us notice. And maybe others around us try to tell us. They say, well, we'll we'll slow down a moment. I, I don't think you're really seeing this the way it is. But maybe we don't listen. We live in an imaginary world. 1 Samuel 4 has a strong feeling of that about it. It's a sad tale. It's a sad tale of a family gone bad. It ends in tragedy. But it has this sense of people not seeing what's happening. So we're going to look at the verses from 12 onwards in particular. But as with this morning, I'm going to start with a little bit of background and then we'll go through that story. At the heart of the tale, when we come into these verses, is a man, a big man, in more than one sense. His name is Eli. He's an elderly man by this time. He's a priest. If you've read the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll have been introduced to him. He's the priest in one sense. He oversees the life 
of Israel's worship of God at their national worship centre in a place called Shiloh, in a big tent known as the Tabernacle. But because of his age, he's also semi-retired. He's functioning in some sense, but his two sons, gents by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, are the active priests. They're the ones doing the job, or should be. But Eli, still an important player in the life of the nation. And Eli is a failure. His sons, who should be the priests who serve in the tabernacle to do people good, are crooks. They're immoral. They're exploitative. They're bullying. Again, you can read about that earlier on if you want to, later in 1 Samuel. And he didn't control his sons. And maybe you'd say, well, maybe he couldn't. He's just an elderly gentleman. Well, there was one thing he could have done. He could have prayed that God would have intervened with his sons. So the tabernacle became a sordid place. And the Lord had to come through a messenger and warn him and say, well, I'm going to change this, but you're not going to like how I change it. And the Lord then brought a young lad from outside the system, well and truly outside the system. He doesn't even come from the tribe of priests, we don't think. A young lad from outside the system is sent to take Israel forward in the coming years. And his name is Samuel, and his name is attached to the book. And God warned Eli, he said, your family... Your family is going to become a shadow of its former self. And that's not shadow in the positive sense that Ed was speaking to us earlier. A shadow in these coming decades. And it begins with a terrible tragedy that ends the lives of Eli's sons. Now, as we saw this morning in introducing it, Israel are at war. They're at war with a nation known as the Philistines, centre on five great uh, lords in in a confederacy. They're down on the southwest border of Israel. Israel went to battle with them and lost the first battle terribly. So they went to get the golden box that sat at the heart of the worship centre. The the box known as the Ark of the Covenant that was a symbol of the presence of the Lord in Israel. They went and got it, they brought it down to the camp, and they thought, great, now God's here. He's in our box. He's going to fight for us. And that was just so wrong, as we thought about earlier. In fact, what actually happened was God fought against them. Because they weren't honouring God. They were actually living lives that dishonoured him. And then they thought they could invite him into their camp and all would go well. So when they went into the second battle, now with the golden box, they were thrashed even further. And two things happened. The Ark of the Covenant, this golden box that symbolised the presence of God, was taken by the enemies. They lost it. And Eli's priestly sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. Now both of those, in a sense, are very negative events, aren't they? Sad tragedies 
for the nation coming out of their sin. But maybe we ought to note, before we move on, some positives in these events. I want you to think firstly about the taking of the Ark of the Covenant. On the one hand, you could say, well, that's devastating for Israel, and they were devastated. It's like the Lord leaving them unprotected, going away, refusing to defend them. But there's a positive sense, isn't there, as well? You can equally, or alongside that, maybe not equally is the correct term, you can see the Lord in this event sacrificing himself to save Israel. God has allowed the thing that that symbolised his presence to be taken away by enemies. So that they can go around boasting and say, the God of Israel, what do they call him again? Yahweh or something. What a loser. We took his box. Apparently he came onto the battlefield and couldn't do a thing. And so God has been publicly put to shame, humiliated. But if you read on in Samuel, do you know what you find? That once the Ark of the Covenant is down on enemy territory, God strikes them with humiliation. Their God, which is no God at all, ends up falling face down before the golden box. So this apparent defeat for the Lord, where he's humiliated, is actually the route to a victory, where in the end the Philistines are just desperate to get this thing off their hands. Now as Christians, when we hear a story like that, we aren't surprised, are we? Because we're immediately reminded of the cross. What happens at the cross? The Lord is taken by his enemies, taken hostage. They get to shout, we won! He lost! They get to kill him. But it's a sacrifice, as we all know and we'll celebrate later, that wins a greater victory. In Jesus' humiliation at the hands of enemies, God's justice on sin is enacted so that Jesus' people will never be condemned. And the Lord's sacrifice becomes the Lord's salvation for his people. So actually, when you read a story like this, yes, you feel the negative. Israel, lost in sin and getting done over. But look for what the Lord is actually doing. And you see small versions of the great things that we rejoice in. But what about the death of the priests? Is there any positive in that? Because they were just a nasty pair. Well, it is negative in many ways to think of their story. And it testifies to the Lord's anger with sin, certainly, very dramatically. And if you play with sin, it always destroys you in the end. You never escape. But on the positive side, it shows good things about the Lord, doesn't it? The Lord is just. In the end, sin catches up with the sinner. Unless you have Christ to protect you and bring forgiveness. On the positive side, the Lord is true to his word. He said he was going to bring these men down, and he brought them down. And you know, when you think of those two, again, 
if you're somebody who's read the Gospels, your mind goes to the Gospels and it goes to Jesus and it goes to the cross. Do you remember Jesus and the corrupt priests? He's dragged in before who? Two corrupt priests who run the temple, the high priest and uh, his relative or relatives, in fact, a whole group of them. And he's condemned by the high priest of his day, a wicked and corrupt bunch. You know, Jesus said, the priests of my day have turned the temple into a den of robbers. When he said that, he was quoting a prophet, Jeremiah. Do you know who Jeremiah was related to? Eli's family. It's like a theme has run all the way through. The people of Jesus' day are just Hophni and Phinehas. They're just corrupt. And Jesus has to deal with these corrupt priests. But at his trial, you remember what he says to them? He says, you won't stand forever. You will fall. Oh, today you condemn me. But you will see the Son of Man on the clouds of glory. You will meet justice. And it happened. He brought their wretched temple to an end. 40 years later so my point is this that yeah this is a tragic story a sad story when you read it and it is of human sin and its consequences but you see the Lord's hands within it you see the Lord working good things from it in the end as he did with the cross but let's come to our verses Now, in verse 12, it opens with a man of Benjamin running from the battle line. A Benjamite runner with sad news. Now, Benjamin is uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's Jacob's, if you remember the story of Israel, comes from a man called Jacob, the great forefather. Well, Jacob had these 12 sons. The youngest son is Benjamin. And he was born to his most loved wife. He had more than one. And his beloved wife was called Rachel. As I say, the the 12 sons became the 12 tribes. This was the youngest tribe in that sense, the youngest son. Now, when Jacob was coming to the end of his life, in Genesis 49, he talks about his sons, and he prophesies what they will become and what their tribes will become. And the thing he says about Benjamin is this, that a Benjamin is aggressive and full of fighting spirit. And, you know, if you read on in Israel's history, he was spot on. Proved true but not always to good effects, because in Judges, well, the tribe is nearly annihilated when they try to fight everyone else. You know, it's like, I don't know, one of these people sort of in a a group who decides that in a drunken state he can take on everyone. Well, Benjamin tries to take them all on and fails. Nearly gets annihilated, so it's not all goes well. They survived only because the other tribes showed them mercy. So there's a a link here back to the book of Judges, actually. But I think the writer is including this detail, saying, a man of Benjamin ran. Because, I mean, he could have just said, a messenger turned up, couldn't he? He didn't have to tell us he came from Benjamin. But I think he's told us this for a reason. In fact, I think he's told us this for more than one reason. I think at the simplest level, you know it's bad if a Benjamite tells you they've lost. Whoever's going to stay on the battlefield, it will be a Benjamite. So if a Benjamite turns up looking a right mess saying, I legged it from the battlefield, you know it's bad. But secondly, beyond that, 
I think it's pointing us forward to the next phase of the story. Because if you know how Samuel's going to go on, it will be a man from Benjamin who becomes the first king. I mean, if you want to, you can play with your imagination for a moment, since we're talking about imaginations. And you could imagine to yourself that this messenger could even be Saul, who becomes the king. But we don't know that. But there's a link. The writer's giving us a link that's going to take us forward into the next part of the story. Israel is changing. A Benjamite has arrived. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, having a Benjamite turn up and report the bad news fits with what's going to happen to Eli's family. Because in these verses we hear echoes of the ancient tragedy of Benjamin's own mother. Now let's carry on with the story. Verse 13. Eli is there sitting, waiting for news. He wants to know what's happened to the ark of God and it says he fears the worst. He's worried. He thinks this day has gone badly. He's every reason to think that. He knows that the Lord is not on Israel's side. He knows what his sons have been. He knows this is a disaster waiting to happen. Well, when the news arrives, firstly, the town is in dismay. Everyone in Shiloh is understandably upset about the disaster. Many maybe have lost their own sons, their own husbands in the battle, they're in dismay. And verses 14 and 15, it says, cries go up, but Eli, he doesn't know yet. He's elderly, very elderly. He's blind. And so he has to say, well, well, what is it? What's happening? Now, the Benjamite didn't go to him first, which is a little bit odd, isn't it? Because you'd think he would go to him first as sort of the big man in the town. But, but he didn't go to him first. But now the soldier comes to him in verse 16 and explains, I'm fresh from the battle, and here's the news. And you hear how he approaches it, don't you? First of all, he says, so, um, we lost. And then he sort of does the slightly worse news. We lost badly. There were many killed. And then he goes to worse news. And, and about your boys, your sons, they're dead. And then worst of all, and we lost the ark. I wonder if that's why the messenger didn't go first to Eli. Um, back in chapter 3, when Samuel has bad news for him, he's scared stiff of telling Eli the bad news. Maybe this messenger is similar. But if so, verse 18 adds to the picture as a sad scene as it continues to unfold. Because what happens, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. Eli is creaky, Eli is heavy. Even the heaviness. There's something that concerns you in being told he was heavy, not in the sense of it's a big criticism of people who are heavy or something, but if you know earlier on, one of the problems with his sons was that they were constantly stealing the best food for themselves in the tabernacle. And Eli at one point is accused of benefiting from their conduct. Well, this big man, the shock hits him so hard, he falls. And his neck snaps. What a story. Father and son and son dead on the same day. 
But as the writer says, it's not their death which actually caused him to fall. It was when he knew that the ark had gone. At the end of verse 18, it says this, He had judged Israel 40 years. We were never told before that Eli was a judge. Not till this point. We knew he was a priest. We knew he was important. We were never told he was a judge. A judge in Israel was supposed to bring justice to the land. He was supposed to bring protection to the land. He was supposed to bring direction to the land. And now suddenly at the end of his story we're told that he was a judge 40 years. And on his watch the tabernacle was trashed. The ark was lost. The army was smashed. And the Philistines were ragingly victorious. So when the writer adds at the very end of the story, and he was a judge 40 years, you suddenly realise the depth of Eli's ruin. Only at the end are we told, and it magnifies the degree of failure. He never judged his sons, as he should. He failed to judge for Israel, as he should. He couldn't judge the Philistines and save Israel, as he should. And now he's lost the ark, and that's his legacy. Scares you, doesn't it? What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? If your life came to an end, what would people say? But the family tragedy isn't over. Because now in verse 19, you've got his daughter-in-law. She was married to Phinehas's son. We're not told her name. Now, Phinehas himself, her husband, we know, had a wandering sexual appetite. That's told to us earlier. So we might feel great sorrow for her. She is in, in many ways, a figure of embarrassment, of shame, a nameless figure with a life overshadowed by her evil husband. Well, she hears what's happened and it overwhelms her. And her baby starts to come. But she's no longer got the mental strength to cope with this. She's no longer got the emotional strength to cope with this. And therefore, she's no longer got the physical strength to cope with this. And so, the birth kills her. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, The midwives or the ladies who are with her say, you've got good news today. There's one piece of good news. You've got a son who's born. And she can't hear them. She's become like Rachel. She's become like Benjamin's mother, who we've been reminded of by seeing that name Benjamin, who died at his birth in an event that was just sadness and loss for her. Do you know what Rachel called her son? ben Only." which means son of my trouble. It was his dad who renamed him. He didn't have to carry son of my trouble through his life. His dad said, no, we'll call him son of my right hand. But that terrible, sad story of Rachel's death is now echoing here. This anonymous mother does the same. Those around her say, well, name him, name him. What shall we call him? And all they can hear her is muttering, no glory, no glory. The word is Ichabod, 
It's explained by the writer, or explained through the mother. Israel's glory is gone. And the writer repeats it to emphasise, the priests are dead, the ark is taken, there's no happiness in any of this. And all she can do as she dies is say the words over and over, no glory, no glory, Ichabod. dying woman cries, the glory is gone from Israel, the ark is taken. Just picture the pain of this scene. Let it seep into your imagination. A woman whose strength is fading, her voice may be a whisper, and over and over she's crying about the loss and shame she feels. A heartbreaking tale of a crashed family. You know, Eli's family on the surface looks so successful. Eli was the judge of Israel for decades. His sons led the tabernacle. They were well-fed people, feasted to their hearts' content. Even in crime, they seemed, to succeed. they seemed to succeed. They ruled others with bullying strength. They took what they wanted. The men had whichever woman they wanted. I don't know, maybe this unnamed woman even accepted her husband's behaviour because she got a good life out of him. I don't know. Maybe she hated his guts. But either way, the writer says it was all rotten in the end. This family thought they could despise the Lord and keep coming out well, only in their imagination. They lived in an imaginary world where sins never caught up with them. But sin always catches up with you. Always. Unless you have it dealt with by the Saviour, Jesus Christ. The reality is that sin left to itself, we are never made clean from it by Christ, that sin in the end shreds you. And it did this family. It's a sad tale. What can we learn from it? Number one. Let's learn not to do what they did, not to live in an imaginary world. Think of this sad woman for a moment who died. What does she say? She says, the glory has gone from Israel. And she says it because her husband has died, her father-in-law has died, and the ark has been taken. But you know, even in that comment, she's missed the whole thing. She's missed the true story. Because the fact is, the glory had long gone from Israel. It didn't go this day. This day just summarised what had been true for year after year of her husband's priestly rule. The tabernacle was a dead shell, a dark place. It said earlier in Samuel, no one heard from God. You know the famous story in the earlier chapter where God calls to Samuel and he goes through to Eli and says, I heard a voice in the tabernacle. What, was it you? Does Eli say, no, but I think it could be the Lord. No. First time he says, that no, wasn't me, go back to bed. Because Eli doesn't expect the Lord suddenly to speak. It takes three hits before finally he says, oh, hang on, I have a different answer. Tabernacle's been dead a long time. 
You know, Exodus 40, we're told that when Israel was travelling through the wilderness, the glory of the Lord would descend on the tabernacle when it stopped, and it would rise up as a cloud to lead them on. That cloudy glory which directed the nation has not been seen in Shiloh for many years. It's summed up with Eli's blindness. The tabernacle was a dark world, lacking glory in every sense. So the first lesson here is this. Be careful. It's easy for us to get ourselves into a state of mind where we know what's happening. We see life. We get the way life is working. And we have to be careful that we haven't created a false little imaginary world that we're living in and we're not seeing the truth. Remember this sad family. They had their life. And then they woke up and realised it wasn't true. Linked to that, always see where sin leads. Earlier on, in a number of moving ways, we were reminded that the Christian path is a hard path. And it is. It affects all of us in different ways, the difficulties, but it's a hard path. And the devil whispers to you, there is an easier way. I can give you a better life. Look around you. Other people have some lovely things and some good lives and really pleasant families who are a lot easier to cope with than your family. And they never give a thought to God. So maybe you're on the wrong path. Don't listen. Don't listen to the whisper. Just as Eli's family once looked like they had it all. Who was a more successful family in Israel than the family of Eli? They were that close from having nothing. And then the gap closed. And they literally had nothing. Sinful world ends only with hell. There are good things in this world. Because God has filled the earth with delights, but don't chase them via sin. It may seem like there's much to gain to take an easier route, but without God, it all ends in dust. That's where sin leads. Don't live in an imaginary world, and particularly don't imagine that sin will ever end anywhere but misery. But then... Remember the positive within the story. What do you do then in the midst of all of that? You put your trust in the Lord. The Lord will bring good. He does here. Yeah, the final result of the loss of the ark, as I was saying earlier, will be the breaking of Philistine power. The Ark of the Covenant will be returned to Israel. It will then become the great marker of the new king of Israel who will lead the people forward in a good way, King David. Out of the darkness, God will bring light from this whole situation. So keep your trust in him. Look to him in the midst of the difficulties and strains of this life. The Lord is the one, the only one who can bring you to light, bring you to what's good. Do you know Ichabod, this lad, um, his name is mentioned only one other time in 1 Samuel. 
And it will be mentioned when, interestingly enough, it's to do with the tribe of Benjamin again. It will be when one of the most famous sons of Benjamin gives the Philistines a thorough beating in a commando raid um, because God turns up to help him. The man is called Jonathan and it's in chapter 14. Out of pain, out of situations of no glory, if you put your faith in the Lord, fresh days of hope can break. Ichabod's birth was all sadness. But it will be mentioned later in relation to Ichabod that a man like Jonathan arrives to give hope. Out of pain, the Lord can bring fresh days of hope. When everything looks dead, the Lord resurrects. We've just had Easter. When glory is gone, the Lord can restore it. Trust the Lord. With your own life, trust the Lord. With others you're concerned for, trust the Lord for this church. He brings good. He brings good where everything looks hopeless. He brings good. And last lesson. It's a very simple one, I guess. How can you escape misreading life and living in an imaginary world? Learn to listen. Eli was warned. His sons were warned. The nation was warned by Samuel. They had God's law. It warned them. They had God's prophecies. They warned them. But no one listened because they lived in their little closed bubble where they knew how life played. It says to us, don't do that. Be always ready to listen. We like to tell ourselves we know how things are, we know the truth. Do we really? Do we really know the reality of our circumstances, truly see what's happening? Do we? We are prone to hide from reality, especially when life gets hard and painful. We're prone to put up barriers to not let people tell us things that we need to hear, but we don't want to hear them. A Christian should be the sort of person that another Christian can go to and say, I've got to tell you something. And it's not going to be easy, but I've got to tell you. Are you like that? Are you ready to listen? Or are you quick to close that down, stop the person talking, throw out all the defences? Christians don't need to be scared to face up to the truth because the Lord, we believe, will bring good from it in the end. We can have ears open to listen to others. Your inner voice may sound very compelling and very convincing. Doesn't mean it's right. Now I know. Doesn't mean the other person's right. You know, they might come and tell you something and in the end it turns out they were wrong doesn't mean the other person's always right. Of course not. Whole nations go astray. Families go astray like Eli's. People get group madness. Churches can go astray. It doesn't always mean the other person's right. But are you willing to listen? Don't be so sure that you're always right. When people say hard things to you. 
And of course, especially, let that be true when you hear the Lord's word read and preached. There is, in the end, one, and only one, fully trustworthy voice in this world. It's the voice of the Lord, speaking through his word. And we've got to be open to hearing that voice. So from this sad tale, learn these lessons. Don't live in an imaginary world. Always see where sin actually leads. But then trust the Lord who can bring good out of even the worst of evil circumstances. Who can bring glory after humiliation. And live believing in him and therefore open to what others would say to you and especially open to what he would say to you. Don't live in an imaginary world.